become a public figure and act in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival, I am not going. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet come fully. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple court and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed at how did this man get such great learning without being taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teachings come from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does, not, does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is no false about him. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gives you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly. So what is going on is they're trying to figure out who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And this is taking place here at a festival. Go ahead, next slide. So this is known commonly as the Festival of Booths. And in this festival, it was to commemorate um, the Jewish journey through the wilderness. It, it, it lasted about eight days, but it also celebrated the harvest time. And so this was something that the Jews did regularly. Like they'll go out um, around this time of the year and go live in tents to remember their journey. And it was all it was this this festival was also connected to a festival called the Dedication of Life. And it was supposed to come together to remember how God had worked in their time before. And it was to commemorate God's faithfulness to the people. And during this time, they would sing the Psalms, primarily the Hillel Psalms of Psalm 113 and 118. And both of these talked about God's coming presence to do something incredible again. And so here is the backdrop of what we're about to talk about a little bit later. But I just want to put that before you. So Jesus responds to his brothers, my time has not come. If you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus' favorite word is time. If there is a brother who knows what time it is, it's Jesus. <laughs> you never have to wonder what time it is when Jesus is around. He is consistently telling people, it's not yet, not yet, nope, not the time. 
He is radically patient, radically unhurried, and he is the most <coughs> interruptible person in the entire world while still having his eye on the clock. And his time is when he will go to the cross and experience the resurrection. He is aware that even in this moment, I will not die. It's not my time yet. This is not the moment for me. And so Jesus tells his brothers, there's a huge <coughs> difference between me and you. You guys can go wherever you want, whenever you want, because you don't testify that this world is evil. I do. And because of that, this world wants to kill me. And so when Jesus talks about the world, I love this quote from John Mark Comer. Um, he is a former pastor, and now he just is like, I don't know, like some guru or something like that. Uh, the world, a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, social norms that are integrated into mainstream and institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. Jesus says, I testify that that world is evil. That's really challenging in our present moment. I keep saying our present moment because I know sometimes it can feel really like you just gotta, kinda gotta get along to get along. You know, you just like, oh, don't ask me what I think about fill in the blank. You know, like, you know, we, we, we live in a, in, in a society like, what do you think about smoking? Something I gotta ask according to my convention. Or what do you think about this candidate or that candidate? Oh, don't, don't, please don't ask me about any particular candidates because I wanna kind of keep to my conviction. Or more sensitive subjects like what do you think about abortion? What do you think about the southern border? What do you think about guns? What do you think about this? And and, and if we yield to what Jesus says, and I'm not saying the answer is always crystal clear, but I'm saying if we go to say, in my followership of Jesus, this is what I believe. We're, we're, we're concerned we might get lambasted. Like, we're going to get blown up. Like, we could lose our job. We could get canceled. We could get kicked out. And so when Jesus says to his brothers, you could go wherever you want and do whatever you want, Jesus' criticism of the temple is coming up, and he recognizes that. He's like, so you guys are going to go and say, oh, God is good and all this other stuff. He's like, I'm going to go and say, that temple is not providing what you think it is. And that's going to bring me a lot of trouble. And I recognize even as a follower of Jesus, I could feel that tension. You know, the, 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 the conversations start to get hot and heavy. I just want to get out of there before someone asks me, and, and, I have to, and I feel almost compelled to tell you what I really think. Like, even I brought some things, some of you might even accost me in the fellowship. So what do you think about Roe Wade? You see, you see Stephen? <laughs> Stephen is my three-year-old. I'm going to go chase after him as soon as you ask me that question. Now I will. I actually have a conversation with you. I think face-to-face -face dialogue is important. But um, when Jesus says, the brothers are challenging Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. They're like, you talk all that good stuff around here. Galilee was more conservative than it was around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the religious hub, the stronghold. This is where the chief priest was around. If you, if you don't understand chief priest, think senior pastor. This is like where the senior pastor of all of Jerusalem hung out. And Jesus being challenged by his brothers, go over there and talk all that Messiah stuff. You won't go over there and talk all that Messiah stuff. Because you know they'll kill you. And so they, they don't believe he is who he thinks he is. But Jesus says, I'm not going to go. But you, 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 some of you might be thinking, did Jesus lie to his brothers? <laughs> or maybe Jesus had a quick moment of this. Oh, I said no, but now I changed my mind. So I can change my mind. Actually, Jesus doesn't lie to his brothers. He does not go and do what they wanted him to do 
which is similar to what Satan tried to get Jesus to do, which is show yourself to be the Son of God. Show yourself to be this person. I'm not going to go and do that for you. But I will go and I will speak. But I'm not going to go on your terms at your level. So the issue isn't whether or not he would attend the festival. It's how he was going to present himself at this festival. And so the crowd says, the crowds here have a mixed opinion of Jesus. Some are like, he's a good guy. Others are like, he's a bad guy. The Greek word here that they use, deceive, comes, um, is also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 13 that talks about a false prophet leading people astray. When they say he's a deceiver. When I was in eighth grade, a new kid moved in to our school, and his, he probably came to school probably a month after school started, and when he showed up, he came out of the limousine. You know, so that was definitely the intro for eighth grade. Right? Like, whoa. He came out of the limousine, he had like these cool looking specs, and he came out, and we were like, whoa, who's this? And then, um, I'm not going to say his name because obviously I haven't seen him in a long time. Hopefully all is well with him. Uh, <clears throat> we ended up having class together. And the first thing when all the, the guys got together, guys and girls got together, who are you? He shared his name. What do you do? He's like, I'm, what does your family do? Oh, we're millionaires. We're rich. Wow. And then he pulls out like, Four $20 bills, so $80. <laughs> now I get eight grade. Eighth grade. Eight grade. 1990s, okay? Yeah. Like, this is the 90s. This isn't like today $80. You're like, with this inflation, you're like, <laughs> you seem like you're struggling. <laughs> Two pizzas and you're broke. <laughs> but this is eighth grade. He pulls out $80. He offers to get the crew some cookies. He's instantly gaining capital here. He's becoming popular, he's becoming cool, he's the wealthy kid on the block. And one day I'm walking home, and I'm like, I've seen that limo before. And I tell the friend, I think that's his dad's limo. He lives over here in North Miami Beach with us. I thought he would live in my church. So we follow the limo. We walk over, we walk over, we find, we see, and his dad comes out with a black hat and a white shirt, and we're like, I think he's the driver. I think he gets this limo and pick people up. He lives in a regular house like the rest of us. So what, what, what else are we supposed to do? We, I went to the park and I told everyone I think his dad's the driver. I don't think he's a millionaire. Well, that started the ball of this whole confrontation of he was going to be on trial the next day. As you know, playground justice is the worst sort of justice. So anyhow, he shows up. Me and the other two kids were with me. They said, we said, his dad's a driver. He looks at us, no, he's not. And I said, I didn't use that word in because it wasn't in play, but if it was, I was like, I got the receipts. We know where you live, buddy. We go to the house and ask him what he do. Like, so he's going back and forth. My dad's wealthy. He's a millionaire, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, so what is he? Oh, that was just a business meeting. And I'm like, we stood out there long enough to know. We know, even though we were angry, we know a business meeting when we see one. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doubled down in his deceit. And we doubled down on our ambition to go find out. So instead of three kids, now it's about 12 eighth graders after school going over there. 
And so we show up to the house, we knock. We showed up around 6 p.m. knowing he would be home. We knock. Hey, is this person here? They're like, yeah. And then the father opened up. What do you do for a living? Oh, I drive, um, I drive limousines. And we were like, do you make millions of dollars doing that? And then he was like, I wish. <laughs> and then he proceeded with some sort of dad joke. And then he comes out, and we were like, hey, we like your dad's limousine business. He just told us he doesn't make millions. I wish we, he could. And then he storms into the back. And then we all kind of disperse. You're like, what do you do after that, right? <laughs> Why do I share that? The crowd is trying to figure out, is he Lord, liar, or lunatic? They're going to put Jesus on trial. We do the same. Jesus is saying some really strong things here. We're trying to discern as we're reading through the Gospels prayerfully, can I trust him? Can I go back and look to see if what he says is true? Can I verify his facts? My friend, unfortunately, he, his reputation was redeemed eventually. But in that moment, you, you're like, you're a liar. You're not a millionaire. You just had $80 for whatever reason, and you, you got dropped off because that's what your dad do for a living. Jesus, on the other hand, is not lying. Jesus is actually who he says he is. Jesus comes out of this out into the temple and he begins teaching and the crowds are reacting and they're astonished because they're like who trained you? Who gave you this formal training? Like where did this come from? And he's like you guys know where my teachings come from if you put it into practice. Put my teachings into practice and you'll find out very quickly this is not from man but this is from God. I know many of us have put the teachings into practice. On the good days, you're like, this is divine. This is God. On the very challenging days, you're like, this is God. Only God can do this. That's how powerful Jesus' teachings are. Jesus challenged the Jews here about not keeping the laws of Moses because they want to kill him. And so the crowds accuse him of having a demon. Now, Jesus' issue is, would a demon heal an entire man on the Sabbath? Is that what the demonic world is doing to healing people? That's a good question to ask ourselves. When we're like, man, this following this Jesus stuff is going way too far. It's causing you to hate people. If your following of Jesus is causing you to hate people, guess who you're not following? <laughs> Jesus. If your following of Jesus is causing you to not look at someone with complete tenderness as if they were made in the image of God, you're not following Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. If you're following the Jesus is causing you to break your, your commitments, break your word, break your covenant, you're not following Jesus. One of the constant things about faithful following of Jesus, when it gets scrutinized, everyone kind of gets left with the, but really, what are they doing? Like, what are they doing? I remember studying, um, studying the Bible with a young man who got baptized. He ended up having really, really hard time with his family. He was um, what the streets would call a ladies' man. He got baptized, and he was no longer a ladies' man. He was a faithful man. And I remember he was saying, man, my parents are coming at me. They're giving me a really hard time, et cetera, et cetera. And then, one day, him and another older brother, a mature brother, ended up talking to the family, and he sat down, and the mature brother recounted to me what, what was said. He's like, 
you know, our son is not pursuing women anymore. He's like, you think he, he's not interested in women anymore? He is, but now he's treating them all differently. He's like, oh, I don't want to, he's using different things. Like, I want to honor them. I want to be pure before women and blah, blah, blah. He's like, what? And so he's like, you rather your son, this is the Caribbean guy, so wild seeds. <laughs> he's like, no. But that's what's bothering you. If he was doing that, then you would be okay with him following Jesus. No. <laughs> So what's bothering you? He's just different. He's different because he's not sowing seeds. Whatever, he could go to your church. <laughs> but you know, when sometimes when we're confronted with the teachings of Jesus, we have, if you're faithfully following him, when, when we're on trial being criticized, people are going to look like, so I'm really upset with this guy because he told the truth? I'm really upset with her because she has um, standards for herself emotionally? I'm really upset with this person because they're not engaging in the gospel at the office? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a superficial level that gets like, yeah. oh man, I'm upset with them because of blah, blah, blah. They're self-righteous, they're this and that. And then you look under the hood of those accusations and you sit back and say, mm, hmm. I don't know, I, I just don't like that they ain't doing what the rest of us are doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they look like they're joyful and not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we were all made in the image of God, but everyone was born with a little bit of hater in them. And sometimes that happens. Like, you know, you're just like, you're just, you're just a natural hater. You know, we gotta pray for your hatingness. I don't think that's an English word or a Greek word. <laughs> Shout out to the hatingness. Uh, let's go to John chapter 7. I mean, we're still in John chapter 7. Let's go to verse 25. So Jesus heals this man and completes the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath to heal him completely. John 7, verse 25, we're picking up here. Um, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they were trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And Jesus, still teaching in the temple court, cried out, Yes, you know me. And you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent, sent me is true. And you do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple on guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then when I, <coughs> then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will see, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Jesus talks to this crowd, and they're going back and forth. They're like, who is he? Where is he from? And Jesus is presenting to this crowd some strong evidence that people are starting to walk away and say, oh, he's the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is the Greek word um, where we get anointed. And anointed was something that the Israelites did. They would, like, anoint a tabernacle. Not a tabernacle, the tabernacle, where God's presence on heaven and earth would meet. They would anoint official people, like prophets, like in 1 Kings 19. They would anoint priests, Exodus 29, Leviticus 8.3. They would anoint kings. And so when the Israelites are like, he's the Messiah, the anointed, Jesus is embodying all of these aspects of anointedness. And they're like, is that the guy? Is he is who he says he is? But the issue is they're tripped up because they're like, he's from Nazareth. And as Nathan said earlier, Nathaniel said earlier in John, nothing good comes from there. Now, Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. If you read the Gospel of Luke, he was born there. Um, we're not going to read it. I'm going to assume you're going to be a Berean and read the Gospel of Luke to get his birth account. But Jesus says he comes from the one who sent him. And he accuses this crowd of not knowing God. They attempt to arrest him, but they can't because God's sovereignty is over this situation. It's like, this is not the hour that he's going to go to jail. This is not the hour he's going to put on trial. And so Jesus, through that one sign he did in John chapter 5, is proving his messiahship to these folks. And so the chief priests and the religious leaders here are accusing Jesus of blasphemous statements that we read um, in chapter 5 and a little bit in chapter 6. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm talking about when I die. I'm talking about my resurrection. We know it now in 2024 what he's talking about. But can you imagine if you never read this before, you'd be like, I don't know where he's going for real. Like, they don't know where he's going. I don't know where he's going. Especially if you could skip the prologue. So the Jews thought he was talking about missionary work. So Jesus says here, he embodies the tabernacle festival. He embodies the Sukkot. And so... This is an interesting ritual that the Jews would do. So for eight days, they'll be living in tents, and they'll go near the temple. They would be pouring water, signs of God's abundance, a whole bunch of water, too. Like, a whole bunch of water would be getting poured in. They would be lighting the lights because they're like, man, a day's going to come where the world will never be in darkness again. And Jesus comes on this last day where people are seeing there's an abundance of water. I said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Let the one who believes in me drink. You're like, there's an abundance of water. Why would I be thirsty, Jesus? If there's anything, there's enough water here to make everyone on thirst be quenched. Why would I come to you? Jesus talking about something deeper here. He's like, I see that there's an abundance of water, but that water isn't quenching what I think you guys have the eight that you guys are looking for. Let's go to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 7. It says, It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem. 
half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. This is a prophecy that Zechariah was given about the restoration of Israel. And the image here is supposed to be of the temple of God where living water is flowing out of the temple of God. And this is what this festival was supposed to symbolize, that one day God was going to restore, replenish, refill the people of Israel. And Jesus stands up here in the midst of this ritual that they did consistently and says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. Mm -hmm. Lord, liar, lunatic, who would say that? But Jesus stands here and he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Come to me. Now, it probably makes more sense, given John chapter 2, where Jesus identifies his body as a temple, that a probably a more accurate translation of most NIV, instead of streams of water flowing from them, should probably be translated more, if anyone thirsts, let this one come to me, and let whoever believes in me drink, as the scripture says, streams of water will flow from him, him being Jesus, instead of from them, us. I believe that the water, the life-giving power of God does come out from disciples in some ways, but I think what Jesus is talking about here in particular, the life-giving power of God comes from him. That if we receive his invitation for our thirst, we will get this life-giving water that he provides. And so a similar prophecy in Ezekiel 47 is just speaking of God restoring the temple and the temple being the focal point of the restoration of all of creation. And Jesus saying, <coughs> what you thought was the temple, the actual building, it's me, the actual temple. I am what you guys are looking for. I am what you guys are aching for. I am what you guys are longing for. And this is why the seven I am statements are all through the scripture. Jesus is like, I have a unique ability to satisfy you in a way that the world will never be able to satisfy you. Because I testified that what the world does is evil. But I've come to give you living water. So this promise that the Israelites are waiting for, that God will restore all things, Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, supposed carpenter, let's put quotation errors over that, but this guy from Nazareth comes up and says, I'm in. I'm here. This is a joyous festival. This festival is filled with joy. And Jesus stands up in the middle of the party, screams out at the top of his lungs, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Everyone probably looking around like there's a lot of water here. Why would anyone be thirsty? And that's the million-dollar question. I think we've all felt that. Most of us in here, when we said Jesus was Lord at our baptism, we felt that. I remember being baptized, and the day before I got baptized, I actually got baptized 16 years ago yesterday. <laughs> Come on, I made it. Nine years. Now you got 16 years. You know, like you're a teenager in the Lord. <laughs> Come on, I can drive now. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't quote. Um, I remember sitting down, made the decision, probably February 1st or something like that. I'm like, this is what I want. And talking to the guys who were mentoring me and helping me know Jesus. And they were like, bro, your sins are going to be forgiven. At that time, I was 21. I just turned 21. I was like, my sins are going to be forgiven. Now, I, I, I thought I sinned a lot. And I did. But I do know I had a, a lot of stuff in my heart, too. But anyhow, I'm like, my sins are going to be forgiven. 
and I just remember sitting there just, just so much anticipation and then the day comes and then I get baptized and I came out the water, salt, it was in the ocean, salt in my mouth and I'm like, and they're taking photos and it was like pretty crazy and we hung out and afterwards I got in the car and I remember just saying this quick prayer like, God, I can't believe I'm forgiven. Everything forgiven. Then we went and it's just bad news for you guys, but then we went and watched the Super Bowl this is where the um, undefeated Patriots lost to uh, the New York Giants. Wow. <laughs> but in Miami, it was good news because we were division rivals. And I remember walking away, and everyone was like, the impossible happened. The juggernaut Patriots were defeated. And I remember walking away like, the impossible happened. My sins were forgiven. That would have been bad news if I was up here and I already cared for the Patriots, right? <laughs> Remember that catch on the helmet? I'm bringing back nightmares for some of you guys. <laughs> it, was, it was an epic catch. That means you knew you were going to lose. You're like, when someone catches a ball like that, this ain't your night, man. Um, but I walked away, and I remember going to bed that night. Peace. Peace. I remember thinking, what am I going to tell everyone? Like, my sins are forgiven. That was like the recurring thing. It wasn't so much I was with Christ, though, that was powerful. I'm like, my sins are forgiven. Like, I'm forgiven. And I felt forgiven. And over the course of a decade plus, I've seen the Holy Spirit miraculously change so much of my character. Still, a lot of work to do with my character. But I've seen, I've seen myself grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Like, I have a, a thirst for more of Christ now. Like, my ache is more of Christ. I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, wouldn't it be great if I had a MacBook Pro? No, no, actually, no. Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if I had Jesus is what I really want. I find even when I get the things that I think would really make me, I, like, give me two hours. I get bored very quickly. I'm like, this ain't what I really want. I think I really want it time with Jesus. I really want to be closer to Jesus. Jesus says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me. That's an invitation for all of us in Christ to come to him. Come to him and experience his goodness. Come to him and experience what he has on offer for all of us. If Jesus is Lord, then streams of living water first and foremost are washing over you to forgive you of all your sins. Freedom from sin. It didn't feel possible once upon a time. I can say as a testimony, freedom from sin is extremely possible. And in so many areas, the Lord has set me free. Now, will I be completely free forever in every single situation? I don't know. I don't think so. But even if, I, even if not, I know I've seen enough to know that the Lord is risen from the dead. I have joy that happiness cannot take away. In the moment, sometimes I forget my joy, but then it quickly comes back. You know, any of you who have ever been in those situations, like, you spend more money than you anticipated, your car got messed up, this happened, and you get frustrated, and then you stop just long enough to say, but you know what? My inheritance is good. Yeah. Yeah. And walking is good for my health anyway. <laughs> and it's like, it'll be all right. I'll be all right. That's right. Like that pivot, I didn't have that pivot before. I'm in fellowship with people who don't have that pivot. And I know some real crazy things happen in life, divorces, um, issues with family, but I have that pivot that I can say, you know what, even as bad as this is, even as foolish as I am, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, I'm loved and I'm liked by God. Mm -hmm. Like God likes me. Mm -hmm. Some of you may not always like me. 
Sometimes I don't like myself. But God always likes me. Amen. And that creates a joy everlasting. And I was like, man, I don't do that. Everyone's like really disappointed. And you're like, that's crazy. But God likes me. I played a, a rec basketball game. And, you know, I, I don't put on some weight. If you see my younger brother, I put on some weight. My knees ain't the same. I ain't shooting the same. And we were getting killed, and I was having so much fun. <laughs> and then my teammates got so angry with me. They're like, why are you having fun? I'm like, at the end of the day, and I put ice on my knees, this knee's going to get resurrected. <laughs> I'm like, the Lord's going to fall. I did not so let me play one game so I could show everyone I knew how to play really well. <laughs> and they're like, we're not picking you anymore. I'm like, I don't care. I got picked by Jesus. <laughs> Joy everlasting, guys. Mm-hmm. Eternal life now. So what's the issue here? The issue is that the that Ezekiel and Zechariah were given this vision of the temple, and Jesus is like, that vision of the temple was just a step, but I'm the real deal. What the temple was supposed to bring, I'm the real deal. The Jews couldn't let go of the temple. You know, if you go back to what was their biggest issue, it was the things that Jesus said concerning the temple. If he would have eased up and let go of his his critique of the temple, he may have been able to win over more Jews. But he would not have really won them over. I am becoming a firm believer that doubts are a very real thing. We have followers of Jesus who have some real sincere doubts. But I think that portion of people who are really struggling with sincere doubts is about this small. I think most of us create doubts to mask whether or not our sin is worth giving up. I don't want to give up this sin, so let me say, I, I, I don't have the metaphysics for a place like heaven. The, 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 the metaphysics of heaven, anybody? Okay, let, have you looked into it? I've got time to look into it. He's like, because you want to hold on to something else. But, you know, Jonathan Haidt talks about this. This is what our mind does. Like, it, it wants to prevent us from looking at a real reality, and so we make something up. So you're like, oh yeah, I totally would do X, Y, Z if X, Y, Z also wasn't the issue. And I think for a lot of us, if we're sincere, for many of us before and probably even now, certain sins we just really want to hold on to, and we got to sit with that. We got to sit with like, why is this sin more important than the living water that Christ has for me? The biblical word is repent, meant to know you change your mind. You have to look at it for what the sin is and what it does. There's no sin that produces life, not one. Look at what it's producing, think deeply, and then the scriptures call you and invite us to leave the world figuratively. This is good news that Christ will do this work for us. You know, for the Christian, for the follower, for the apprentice, for the disciple of Jesus who is their rabbi, be very careful you don't entangle yourself to sin again. It, It has a death grip. And some things we've been set free from, if we get near it, it will put us back in a sleeper hold and rob us of our joy. You know, one of the things that I'm big, I, I'm really a proponent of, but I want to be careful that we don't turn these things into the temple itself that make us miss God, is spiritual formation. I believe we should all practice being like Jesus, walking with Jesus, becoming like Jesus. Bible study, prayer, Things like the Sabbath, fasting, silence, solitude, 
community. I think all of these are so important, but if at any point these things become more important than the Jesus you're trying to follow, they become a danger. <coughs> I want you in your scriptures as much as possible, but if you think I'm a good Christian because I read the Bible, then you miss what Jesus did on the cross for you. I want you practicing Sabbath and having great rest and great balance in your life, but if you're like, I'm going to practice Sabbath so I can be happy instead of I can transform into a person of love. You're missing the point. So let's not take these good things that help us be more like Jesus and open us up to be filled with Jesus and make them ultimate things like the, um, the, the Jews in this story did with the temple. We don't want to see Jesus on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I eat with you? Didn't I do this? And he's like, I never knew you. We don't want that. He is Lord for many of us, and I hope he's Lord for all of us one day. And so we recognize that we are saved by grace, and God's grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Let's say a word of prayer for communion.